First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Friday, July 1st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, Joe Biden said this. I can understand why the American people are frustrated because of inflation. But inflation is higher in almost every other country. Prices in the pump are higher in almost every other country. We're better positioned to deal with this than anyone, but we have a way to go. Working backwards, better position, that's speculative. Gas prices higher elsewhere, that's true. Inflation worse almost every other country, false. So that's important when a president says something false about the cause of the most important issue to Americans. I called this out on the show and watch for others who did so as well. So it wasn't exactly crickets, but far from the robust chirpings of the vespertine animals that normally attended a Trump mistake. I get it. Trump lied a lot. And there was great joy and glee in telling the public when he was fibbing. That is much diminished under Joe Biden. Among the networks, I found only CBS discussing the assertion. Here is guest David Nelson from Bell Point Asset Management being questioned by MarketWatch's Ben Tracy. So, David, what do you make of the president's remarks? Is the U.S. really in a better place to tackle record high inflation? We certainly have the tools, but even if what he said was true... Which it's not. Couldn't he just say it's not? Fox did a flat-out fact check. Host Stuart Varney gets it right speaking with Congressman Kevin Brady. The president also again claimed that inflation is higher in other countries than it is here. But we've done some checking. Inflation is lower in France, Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, France, and a couple of other major countries too. He's, He's wrong again on this. I bet some of those other countries include France, but he is wrong. And then the guest takes that moment of clarity and muddies it. He's dead wrong again on that. I think confused about it, uh, frankly. Uh, most reports show America's inflation is about three percentage points higher than most okay. of the world, mainly because of his spending uh, uh, policies and his anti-energy policies. No, the worldwide inflation rate is not 5.6. It is closer to the U.S. level of 8.7. And putting aside the claims about energy policies, also inaccurate. I don't know if you can say that inflation is mostly due to Biden's spending. I do know you could say it is largely due to stimulus packages, including Biden's and Trump's. If you want to be really conservative, you could say it's somewhat because of Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus. Certainly, 
it is caused by having more money chasing the same or fewer goods, which is to say the classic explanation for inflation. That exactly happened. Factcheck.org did a good fact check on this one, quoting a wide range of very credentialed experts giving a wide range of percentages, well, between 2 and 4% of the 8.7% of inflation coming from stimulus spending, the American Recovery Act under Joe Biden specifically. Here were some of the people they surveyed for their insights, who all said, you know, a significant part, maybe approaching half, I personally think that's too big, of the 8.7% inflation was because of that particular stimulus. We had Alex Arnon, uh, Associate Director of Policy Analysis at the Penn Wharton Budget Modeling Center, Wendy Edelberg, director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings, who was on the Council of Economic Advisors under Obama and George W. Bush. We had Jason Furman, former Obama economic advisor, now Harvard professor. We had a report by the San Francisco Federal Reserve. These are called credentials, people speaking against self-interest, people admitting they themselves were wrong, people who know what they're talking about. They offered estimates. Exact numbers are unknowable. It is, in fact, responsible to convey to the public, if they want accurate information about inflation, that yes, some of Biden's stimulus accounted or contributed to that. NPR, however, interviewed Josh Bivens, director of research for the left-leaning, I would say quite left-leaning, Economic Policy Institute. Here is NPR host Elsa Chang asking him about stimulus. Well, there's also blame directed at the federal government and and all the federal spending on pandemic relief, like stimulus checks, small business loans, uh, child tax credits, pauses in student loan payments, etc. The argument is, I understand, like if there's more money out there to be spent, there's more demand and prices will rise. Is there truth in that? Inflation is global. There's been an acceleration of core inflation across every advanced economy, even the ones that did very, very little fiscal relief. This is not the question. This is a dodge, and it is incidental to the question. Remember, did the U.S. government spending contribute to the situation that voters consider to be the number one issue facing them now? But Bivens did get to it. Here, I'll let him continue. Um, And so I think the evidence linking specific Biden-era policies to the surge in inflation is just really, really weak. That's really, really wrong. Okay, maybe he does think that, I don't know, but he's wrong to think it. And if he's conveying that, oh, this is what the best research shows, he's being inaccurate. Listeners are getting an inaccurate assessment of what happened. I looked at the at the comments about this. Most of the listeners were a bunch of stupid Trump fans saying Biden sucks. And then a bunch of Democrats saying, see, Biden's been vindicated. Okay. It's one interview with one economist. NPR tweeted out this interview with the words, it feels like every basic cost has skyrocketed and many Americans are now frustrated with inflation and are looking for someone to blame. We fact-checked some common claims about what's going on. But Bivens was not conveying facts and that wasn't a fact-check. He was not conveying to the public the most accurate information and what the assessment of the smartest, fairest people were. I will not get into motivation for why this happened, not Bivens's, not NPR's. 
I will say I used to love working in news because I could say for all the charges of bias, which I'm probably not going to be able to talk you out of, depending on what you think our bias is, we do play it straight with the vital issues. We make every effort to give the most accurate information. We will also give you a range of information. We'll tell you about dissenting information. We'll label it as such. But when politicians, including ones with the biggest microphones, mislead, we're certainly eager to put that in the proper context. It's kind of what we live for. Or it is what we lived for. That effort, look, powerful person misleading you, you need to know, it's a big part of how I define credibility, the accurate assessment of falsifiable statements. I happen to believe in objective truths. There are shades of interpretation to lots of stories. But a belief in objective truth is why we could say global warming was real. Without objective truth, eh, maybe the election was stolen. Because of objective truth, we could say that efforts to teach the theory of evolution are better and more founded in science than efforts to teach intelligent design or teaching the controversy. This is what a commitment to accuracy means. It means that when Democrats get it wrong, or when the progressive caucus mangles it, or when the most sympathetic parties in our society are not strictly speaking on the side of truth, we say so. Our willingness, once our eagerness to point this out, gives us credibility in all the other circumstances when the audience is wondering about the motivation of the information providers. Recent claims about inflation put forward by the Biden administration have been insufficiently rebutted and contextualized. We have an inflationary spiral of motivated reasoning and a deficit of accuracy. On the show today, I spiel about, well, a USB stick and some sake haze, but kind of more generally malaise. But first, speaking of truth, I bring you the big lie an Audible original series about a real story, the making of a 1954 film called The Salt of the Earth, which was a victim of the Hollywood blacklist. The Big Lies co-executive producers, John Mankiewicz and Aaron Lipstadt are up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. The Big Lie is an Audible original about the making of a movie that I had heard about but had never seen. In fact, most of America never saw it. 
It is a movie called Salt of the Earth, and it was banned, effectively banned for political content in 1954. The story, most of it real, some of it I believe a bit imagined, is the subject of this multi-part, I'm going to say riveting, Audible original. The director of it, Aaron Lipstadt, joins me. The producer and writer, John Mankiewicz, is here too. Gentlemen, thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, uh, John, we'll start with you. Give me how this story came to being. Was it originally thought of as, ooh, this would be a great bit of audio storytelling? No, it wasn't because audio storytelling wasn't a big thing at the time that, that Aaron and I started this. And actually, Aaron is better at, at saying how this came to be with meeting Paul Jericho. Paul Jericho produced Salt of the Earth. Salt of the Earth is a movie that was made by three blacklisted filmmakers. Paul was a producer. He had also um, had a career as a writer. He was an Oscar-nominated writer. Um, but he made this movie with Herbert Biberman, who's the director, and Michael Wilson, who was uh, also an Oscar-winning writer. They had found the story of a minor strike in Silver City, New Mexico, which was perfect for what they wanted to do. They Herbert was one of the original Hollywood 10 who'd been... He had actually been to prison for his views for his um, as part of the blacklist. Um, the strike involved a uh, mine worker strike by, I should say, Caucasian and Hispanic mine workers in southern New Mexico in Silver City. So they ended up making this movie at great cost and great difficulty. They were blacklisted. They couldn't get the, the um, cooperation of the unions, of the labs, of any film technicians. Um, and Paul was convinced reasonably because there is evidence and, and mm -hmm. documentation of this that the government was also involved in trying to suppress this movie through uh, various means including the fbi and he had the story which told basically his story the story make this movie but instead of as he put it making a pious tale about these poor victimized blacklisted filmmakers he said let's tell the story from the point of view of the fbi the man who's trying to shut this movie down um and see what happens from his point of view. And that character was the one invention. I mean, obviously the story of the making of the movie and the characters, real people's real names, but of course, you know, you, you couldn't know all the dialogue, but the FBI character was the conceit that made this uh, a fictional film when it was originally conceived of as a film? Well, it, it wasn't a conceit. Uh, I mean, the, the character himself, yes, was, was, had fictional elements and we made up his name. But there is, if you look through the FBI files that are available now, they had, they had an agent whose name is redacted on the FBI forms uh, on the case of this movie, you know, from six months before production to the time they, you know, deported their star, Rosario Revueltas, you know, a week before she finished her work. You know, and they were denounced on the floor of Congress. This was a concerted effort to depress this movie. There was one FBI agent who did most of the uh, work uh, trying to complicate the production of this movie. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, it, it was an assignment out of the L.A. Bureau. Hoover was really into Hollywood. You know, he actually did read the trades every morning before he got out of bed. Um, and the, the head of the field office at the time, the real head of the field office, went to all these movie premieres. The FBI had a guy reviewing movies for communist content. Um, this was directly in their sites. And, and these guys, the three guys, uh, you know, if you were blacklisted, most people who are blacklisted, 
went to Europe and worked for move moved to Mexico. Yeah. These guys just went right at it and formed a, an independent film company and the studios were not happy about that. So just just to finish our involvement, um, so I had read the story that Paul had written and I at that time had a deal at Paramount with John as my partner and we just thought this was a great idea. Paul was going to write it. We pitched it to Paramount. They liked it. And there was a Writers Guild tribute to it was kind of commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the blacklist and a tribute to Paul who had spent much of his life after the blacklist in restoring credits to blacklisted writers who had either worked under assumed names or hadn't been gotten, gotten the, the credit they deserved. So, so Paul was very um, highly regarded lionized by the guild. They had this event and Paul came down for that. And, um, he was involved in a car accident on his way home to Ohio uh-huh. from that event. And he died. Wow. And um, obviously, this is a huge um, blow to per- personally to us because we'd come to really respect him and we're you know very happy to have known him. Um, but after some consideration, his widow agreed that uh, John should write this story. So this was written, you know, some two decades ago by John. And around what year were you pitching this as a feature film? Late nineties, ninety eight, ninety nine. Okay, so the character who's now played and embodied by John Hamm, maybe, I don't know, you want to tell me Russell Crowe or someone like that was considered for his role? <laughs> well, the funny thing is John Hamm was considered for his role. In 99? Not 99, but um, after right. the screenplay was written, um, I did a series with John in uh, 2001 and got to know him then. And... Um, when he started doing Mad Men, which was a few years later, he became very bankable as a, as a star. And we also thought, I mean, he's perfect for the role for so many reasons. Yes. Um, but for, the, for those similar reasons, he passed because he was basically playing a 50s hat-wearing, suit-wearing guy, and he wanted to do something different. That's not what he wanted to do. That's interesting because I know when uh, Matthew Weiner talked about casting him, he w- the thought was he was almost too good looking to play modern roles. He was this throwback 50s character. And he does play a lot of, to this day, he does play a lot of G-men, right? A lot of, uh, you know, stern American type characters who, when you scratch the surface, you reveal they have a lot of humanity. Uh, bingo, that's who he is in The Big Lie. Yeah. No, he was he was perfect. I mean, I don't think we ever seriously considered anybody else. And you had each worked, as I looked at these credits, you had worked with a lot of the stars, right? John, you worked on a house and House of Cards had Kate Mara and Lisa Edelstein, I think, was in House a lot. Like how many of these people, these voice actors, had you worked with before of the prominent members of the cast? Well, I think between the two of us, we'd worked with a lot of them. But the fact is, you know, it was COVID. And once John came in, everyone we asked said yes. But but you're right. We um we we had worked I think Ana de la Ruera, who plays uh, Lala in the in the big lie, was the only one that we had not had uh, of the major roles, was the only one we hadn't had direct work experience with, uh, one of one or both of us. Um and because we we're both new to this medium, I think we took extra care in trying to make sure that you know, we had a huge cast. There's over 150 speaking parts in this in this show. So it was very important, clearly, to us. And, you know, obviously we'd been listening to a lot of stuff that, that the voices, that the actors be not only really good actors, but also 
will also be willing to do it by being friends of ours. But um, most important was that, you know, you really want to have voices that you know without having to explain it. We didn't want to have to do a lot of what I would call extracurricular activity, which means you don't want people to say stuff that they wouldn't normally say. You don't want to say stuff that you know is written because it's a it's a audio drama and you can't see who these people are. But just in terms of casting voice actors, it would seem that actors can act and you could probably throw people into parts they never could have if you were looking at them physically. And yet that wasn't done. Troy Evans, and if people, people probably know him, he had a prominent role in Bosch, which I know you also uh, uh, worked on, were instrumental with there, John. He's, he plays this rumpled guy and he is a rumpled guy. And Kate Mara uh, plays this beautiful woman and she is a beautiful woman. And Bradley Whitford probably plays uh, an, a smart screenwriter many years younger than he is in real life, but they all were kind of playing to type. And that was my question. I guess you answered it, but the pluses and minuses of doing that. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is you also, despite having known voices, you can't have, if it's, there's three people in a scene, you can't have someone's voice be too similar in register or tone to someone else's. You know, the fame part really helps. You know, oh, that's obviously Bradley Whitford. That I know who that guy is. But if he's talking to, you know, a, a more minor character in a scene, there can't be any confusion. You know, you have to know who these people are. And so it's a lot of that we learned was part of the learning curve, I think. Well, also in taking it to an audio series, there is um, a scene, I think it's pretty early in episode five. I'm, I think I'm getting that right, where... Uh, someone, a character is giving on a, a speech at a congressional hearing. And then you hear that speech out of a radio as a character is listening to that. Visually, that's really easy to translate. And the audience, I don't know, maybe in 1917, the audience wouldn't have gotten that film grammar, but now we do. But in terms of audio, were there moments like that where you weren't sure it would work? And then how did you determine that it did? Well, I mean, with with transitions from the real thing to hearing it on in the car. I mean, we had an amazing, you know, uh, you know, top shelf movie sound team uh, who would, you know, fine tune the radio filter and make sure you heard the rumble of the car, you know, to bring you into the car radio uh, and the wind going through an open window of the car as the car was moving. I mean, so we did, you really have to, you, you have to think about that stuff and, and, you know, picture, it turns out pictures are worth a thousand words, but you can, you can also uh, use sound and the detail, you know, the level of detail of sound in this, I think. But there's, there's also, I mean, there's, there's specific sequence that were in the film script that I know I was, and I'm sure John will agree that we were like, how do we make this work and do we just go somewhere else? And one example is in, in the first chapter, um, they're bugging, they're bugging um, Mike Wilson's house because they, they want to know what's going on. And there's a sequence where um, the FBI agent, Jack, is um, installing a bug. His partner, Gus, is on the lookout. And you see cars go by and finally Mike Wilson's car pulls into the driveway. Now, obviously, when you're doing this as a movie, 
you see Jack working, you see the car approaching, you see the nervous face of the partner, you see that close-up of the the, the, the the screwdriver and the bug, That's and right. he drops no something. One's, no one's ever put a bug, no one's ever bugged anything in a movie that wasn't just seconds ahead of getting exactly. found out, yes. So, <laughs> so how to do that? Well, part of it is, I think we, I think John, you added a little bit of dialogue just to indicate um, almost done or can you get me that so and so? Yeah. But really, it was it was. Um, th- there's two things that I think I can say, which contradict each other but illustrate the, the difficulties of doing audio drama. One is if you listen to the old stuff from whether it's BBC or the th- radio plays of the 30s, the audience certainly at those time was was maybe trained but certainly understood, like we understand film grammar now, they kind of understood radio storytelling. So if you had, you know, some horse's hoofs, and, and, and Dr. Watson says, oh, there's a cab now, cabbie! And the, and the handsome driver says, evening, governor! And then you hear a creak of a door open, and then you hear the horse's hoofs, you know the next scene is going to be while they're in the cab driving through the streets of London. So the audience really goes for that, and they don't need a lot of detail. But on the other hand, what we found out is there's, first of all, because we listen to things with so much more care now, we have really high, high quality headphones or, you know, our car stereo is so sophisticated that there's a lot, a lot of things you can do technologically, which can kind of be equivalent to what you do in, a, in, 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 in showing a scene. So you can have, okay, you can say, okay, this scene, we want Jack in close up and honor his wife is you know, 15 feet away across the room. You can play that space between the, the, the sound effects, the stereo separation, the volume levels. You can, you can really get a lot of detail so that when you close your eyes and listen to this thing, for me, the goal was, can you set the scene? Can you feel like, oh, I get it. He's walked in. He's crossed the room. She's still over there. She's coming forward now. And play that dynamism in the way you could a movie. So you both take advantage of what the audience will give you, but but also take them to a place where maybe they haven't gone to an audio drama before. When audio drama came back on podcasts, there was a lot of hand-holding. There was a lot of uh, the conceit of um, someone dictating something into a tape or a lot of phone conversations because a phone conversation would dictate that two people were only talking to each other and couldn't be communicating visually. Now I think maybe podcasts, um, audio drama presented on podcast is getting up to speed, but I don't even know if we are where we were with uh, the BBC, where they have a more robust tradition of this, or where we were in the 1940s when we're just used to listening to audio drama. I think that's a big part of it. I think that, you know, if you if you were one of those, you know, families in the 30s where you'd gather every Friday night and listen to The Shadow, you understood what the what the what the traditions were, what the expectations were, and now we're trying to re-educate people um, and get and get it to that level and beyond. So that was that was a goal, certainly. John Makowitz and Aaron Lipstadt are producers of the Audible original, The Big Lie. John is the writer, Aaron is the director, and it's available now. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back 
along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now the spiel. Yesterday, President Joe Biden came out in support of a temporary reprieve, a carve out of the filibuster in favor of codifying Roe. One problem with that is, is not going to happen. Cinema, mansion, not on board. Second problem with that is, even if it does happen, is not going to happen. Victoria Norse, a professor at Georgetown Law Center, formerly chief counsel to Vice President Joe Biden, said, I don't know, even if cinema and mansion change their minds, or maybe it's mind, then what happens is Congress passes a law, Senate goes along with it, Biden signs it. Supreme Court rejects it once again. And I'll layer onto that two reasons why it's not going to happen. And even if it does happen, it won't happen. If it does happen and the Republicans regain control of the Senate, they'll just pass their own law and it will be national and it will be unfilibusterable to change it back to the status quo, which is bad, which is many states banning abortion, but at least some states being islands of choice. Republicans hold sway in the Senate. Once there is no filibuster, I expect they'd pass a national law just banning abortions everywhere. And even New York and California, Illinois, very important state in terms of all its neighbors, even they will have to comply. So this is where we are in terms of legislation. We can't really pass the legislation we need, even when we pass something that's on a topic that we're desperate for, like this recent gun control legislation. It's mostly minor. It was a, such a deep compromise as to be uh, barely an achievement, and they want a big boy party for their baby steps. I do have to say, and I like to find, if not the silver or gold and the pewter linings, I do have to say one pewter lining in all of this is for the first time, these upcoming elections are not being touted as the most important of our lifetime. Every single election, the most important of our lifetime. But these, at least we seem aware, look, the Republicans are going to win the House, probably the Senate, maybe not. But either way, nothing much will get done. I remember when my son, my second son was born in December 2008, and I was like, wow, you missed a big election, kid. This next election, it's going to be the most important election of your lifetime, but not even close to the most important election of my lifetime. And then since then, every election most important of our lifetimes, I would say, my fellow Americans, we are at a crossroads in terms of most important elections in our lifetimes. Tell you what else we are. We are really and truly frazzled and chewed up and at each other's throats and at our collective wits end. It seems like it. And 
It is like it. Yeah, I know. In real life, here's the weird thing. In real life, you seem to get along with your friends and even strangers and maybe even people in towns that didn't vote like your town when you're actually interacting with people face to face. That's real life. And so you'd think, well, that's the important thing. But when you think about it, how often are you ever actually in real life? Maybe 20 minutes a day max? You know me. I don't think catastrophizing helps us, but I often don't want to under-catastrophize. I look at developments and I think, is this actually a catastrophe? And lately, the answers, shake the eight ball, have been trending a little uncomfortably towards yes. Dobbs is really, really bad. New York rifle and pistol v. Bruin, bad. The EPA ruling, also not good, but... I'm also aware that we all are walking around with very advanced machines in our pockets that are optimized for dread. And that plays a huge toll. The algorithms that run them select for outrage and angst. Engagement is enragement, is what I'd say if I was, I don't know, some kind of cross between Malcolm X and Williams Jennings Bryant for 2022. There are cures to this, you know, mostly about quarantining the bad information or sequestering yourself away from it, right? Oh, yeah, I I no longer have time to have this junk in my inbox. What to do is I curate my feed, right? You probably do this too. I mute the irritating accounts. And then maybe you go beyond that and find out that all the accounts or too many of the accounts are irritating. The irritating to useful ratio has gone out of whack. So you get off Twitter, you unsubscribe, you don't pay attention to news, you start to divest from civic life. This is the cure. But here's the thing. I like news. I got into news because news was fun. What's in the news isn't always fun, but If done right as a presenter of news and as a consumer of news, and if you get a real good, accurate read on what the world is really like, it can be very empowering. So you know not to catastrophize every bummer, and you know not to be bummed out by every neutral action. And even when something is objectively tragic, you put it in the broader context of everything else that's going on, and you could get on and you could actually go go ahead and live your life and not be... Um, so paralyzed by our machines and the information that the world seems to be trending in a over-the-cliff type direction. I think recently of this Japanese guy who lost his USB stick story. Lost and found USB sticks with data on 460,000 people from the New York Times. The plight of a technician tasked with transferring a city's worth of personal data is a lesson in the risks of combining small important objects with a night out drinking. Hold on there, subhead. Tiny umbrellas in your Mai Tais, those are small, important objects. They need to be combined with a night out drinking. But what happened to this guy is he was a technician who was working a shift where he takes everyone's data from the town of Amagasaki and puts it on a USB drive. This is not optimal in terms of data storage, but he has all 460,000 people. And here's the order in which the New York Times lists it. The names birthdays, and ID numbers of the 460,000 people in the town. So, not good, not good, can live with it, doesn't seem great. And then they go on to say, their home addresses, 
and bank details were in the trove of data too. No, that the two is the birthday and the bank details needs to go up top. And after all this, the guy goes out, he passes out drunk. He doesn't know where his USB uh, little data stick is. He wakes up, he tells everyone, I think I lost everyone's birthday and oh yeah, bank details. They look for it for days and then they find it possibly where the guy left it because he blacked out and he doesn't even know if his bag even moved from the moment he blacked out. The New York Times goes on to say, the man who has not been identified was a subcontract. Whoa, 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 whoa. The whole story is this man over-identified all of his fellow 460,000 citizens. And so talk about the punishment not fitting the crime or the karma not being correctly applied to the person at the middle of a kerfuffle, a karma kerfuffle disconnect. They don't even name the guy. They needed to name the guy. They needed to tell everyone his birthday, everyone his ID number, little details about the bank account of all the times to extend anonymity. Maybe this is the town of Amagasaki turning over a new leaf and saying, well, we want to show you how seriously we're taking data now. We're not even telling you who who this guy screwed everything up. We're not even telling you his name. I like that story. I wanted to share it with you. It was a couple days old. I never got to. All the elements are fun. Abortion, Ukraine, global warming, that seems not fun. Except I say, if it can be viewed through a proper lens of a story about a person or characters, and what all people are trying to do is navigate the unknown, I think it becomes, if not fun, then a lot more palatable. Take a story of any murder, a tragedy, but who was the shooter? Was he a kid who didn't think he had a way out? What about the cop who was there or wasn't on the corner? Why? What were the reasons and strategies that could have put him there to prevent it? You have a mayor with an ego, a political calculation, good or bad. Once you know all that, once it's more fleshed out, this tragedy becomes something other than paralyzing. This tragedy becomes something to think about, to work out for yourself. So you maybe understand what the dynamics are of the most horrible stuff in our society. Most of news, most of information is a story of people doing what they define is best. Eh, in the moment, that eighth shot of sake might not be best, but, you know, it's their definition affected as they are by their state of mind. And I love that. I love trying to get at that. I love trying to understand that. Where I think a lot of news and information is going is it's now becoming less a tool for that, for understanding even really flawed people, and it more is becoming a bludgeoning tool. Information, news is seen as part of a power struggle, and I like that a lot less. I don't like predefinitions of good or bad. I don't like using your ink or pixels to advance the story of villains and heroes that we figured out beforehand. They call a lot of this what used to be called activism. They call it now impact journalism. But I like it when things puzzle out, when you can sit back and you can understand a little more of what's going on. The Japanese story isn't even really a story. Nothing happened. He just thought it did. He found his USB stick three days later. Plus, Saki sneaks up on you. There is, there is, however, if you want to view things through the lens of power, there's a way to get mad at it. These, these government officials who didn't care, who didn't care to have the right procedures in place, this irresponsible, probably privileged technician who didn't care about his fellow man, someone must pay. There's a lot of wrong in the middle of the story. I don't like to look at it like that. I sense that I'm increasingly being asked to. 
Kenneth Burke wrote about frames of reference, tools for understanding human motives. Quote, out of such frames, we derive our vocabularies for the charting of human motives. I have always uh, operated out of the comic frame, which doesn't mean everything's a joke. It's a way to understand life. Because the opposite of that is the tragic frame, which is a lot about power and struggle and right and wrong. I sense that not just news, but our relationship to nonfiction during my lifetime has moved from the comic to the tragic. Not completely, but it's making its way towards more of a tragic frame. Don't know if that's entirely because it comports with information that is now known that is clearly more tragic than it once was. I don't think so. I could chart the tragedies since 1971, and there are quite a few. It's not that I've lived in a golden time, and now I don't. I think our frames are changing. I am naturally hopeful. Maybe comic isn't exactly only my frame. Maybe it's my disposition. But I do think it's a lot better to be operating from that assumption and outlook than what the algorithmic imperatives seem intent on foisting upon us. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com